This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 13th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. One of the worst sins of the Affordable Care Act is that it effectively outlawed most health insurance. That from Cato adjunct scholar Jeffrey Singer. He says the focus of reforming health insurance should be simply legalizing the practice of buying and selling it. You argue that health insurance, as we once knew it, is illegal. Well, for for all intents and purposes, it is. Uh, Prior to the uh, Affordable Care Act going into effect in 2014, people, just like with any other kind of insurance, people could buy any kind of insurance that any insurance company is willing to sell them. So, for for example, just like with a business, if you have a particular um, issue— because remember, insurance was uh, designed to help deal with high-cost, catastrophic-type, unpredictable events. So a, a business regularly goes to an insurer and says, I have this situation I want to protect myself against. Uh, can you insure me against that? And they, would, they could, to this day, design a product to fit that particular situation, run the numbers and say, I can insure you, but it'll cost you this and this amount. Same thing was true for health insurance until the ACA. What the ACA did was basically establish a category of health insurance called ACA-compliant insurance. The federal government basically designed insurance. So no longer can you go to an insurance company and say, I have, uh, I don't need obstetrics coverage. I don't need uh, dentistry for children or eyeglasses for children. I just need uh, something that would cover me so I don't go bankrupt. Uh, so I, something with a high deductible catastrophic thing, I'll take care of the rest. The insurance company can't say to you, fine, it'll cost you this and this amount. They have to, com- they have to be ACA compliant. They have to have the... 10 essential benefits, whether you need them or not, um, and uh, the, the formulas regarding how much of, of the uh, costs are paid by the insurer and how much are paid by you have to be met. So uh, there's no longer a, a choice. In fact, insurance companies that sell non-ACA-compliant plans get penalized for doing so. So if we're going to get back to any, anything that resembles healthcare freedom, and uh, also get back, or I shouldn't say back to, because we never really were in a free market in healthcare, but at least go in that direction towards a free market in healthcare. The first step in my mind is to make health insurance legal again so that uh, everybody can seek the product that fits their particular needs and an insurer that would like to sell them that product and do so. So you, you and I talked about uh, at one point how you could buy insurance against a substantial shift in your health status. Correct, yeah. And uh, that was available for a long time. Health status insurance was just uh, beginning to be, be seen in the market when the ACA wiped it out. But, but the other kind of insurance that's been around for a while was uh, the guaranteed renewable insurance. Uh, anybody who purchases life insurance probably is familiar with the term, they'll, they'll buy guaranteed renewable life insurance. Well, prior to the HIPAA in 1997 going into effect, um, if you went to buy health insurance, uh, the person who would sell you the health insurance would ask you, would you like to buy that with a guaranteed renewable option? And you say, well, what's that? Okay, well, we'll sell you uh, an ec- for an extra amount of money um, 
a, a rider to the policy that says if you were to change, get a change in health status where you're now more costly, you can't be dropped at the end of the year and your renewal premium can't go up as a result. And um, of course, you would have to be risk underwritten for that. And but it made sense to do that. So by by the time HIPAA was passed, uh, roughly 70 percent of people who bought health insurance on the individual market were buying it with a guaranteed renewable option. When HIPAA was passed, uh, among the other things it did was to say from now on, it's not an option. If you're going to buy insurance on the group or individual market, you're going to also have to buy with it that guaranteed renewable option. But but you paid separately for this. So it's like you had two policies. So when President Obama, in the State of the Union address after the ACA went, was passed, said, now, if you get asthma, I remember those words, if you were to get asthma, you can't be thrown off your insurance policy. And I thought to myself, well, that's been the case since 1996. And for some people who on their own bought the guaranteed renewable, that was the case even before then. So that's a blatant falsehood. So similar concept. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, economist John Cochran wrote a, a paper for the Cato Institute in the early 2000s where he, sa- he said you can have something called health status insurance. So you could, again, it's either as a separate policy or as a rider, you can buy uh, insurance that will protect you against a change in health status. Because under guaranteed renewable, you can't be dropped and your rates can't go up. You, of course, you paid for that in the insurance policy, but let's say you decided you didn't like that insurance plan anymore and you wanted to switch plans. Well, there's a good chance if you have a developed a change in health status, uh, insurance companies either won't want to sell you insurance or if they will, it's going to be very expensive. That was my related question to that is like, well, if you've got, if you've purchased guaranteed renewability as an option on your health insurance policy and you come to dislike the insurance company, you're, you're sort of stuck. Right. And there were a lot of people who I knew personally who said, I can't stand my insurance company, but I got to stay with it because it's guaranteed renewable. And I came down with, uh, you know, cancer or something like that. So um, but with the health status insurance, on the other hand, that's a separate uh, insurance policy for which, again, you're underwritten. So the younger and healthy, healthier you are when you take it out the cheaper it's going to be. And what that would do is uh, insure you against that kind of occurrence. So let's say you no longer like your insurance company and you want to switch to another company, but but because you have a a very risky condition like cancer, that insurance company either doesn't want to sell you insurance or will sell it to you, but for a huge amount. Well, that's what you got in the health status insurance for to pay for that. And that wasn't just an idea. It was actually starting to, to, to become offered. In 2009, United Healthcare was actually selling this insurance policy. But of course, the ACA eliminated that because the ACA decided to, to deal with the, the uh, issue of pre-existing conditions by saying, okay, from now on, all health insurance must take everybody regardless of pre-existing conditions and cannot charge any, them any differently than people who don't have pre-existing conditions. So it basically made all of the healthy people pay in their insurance policy for the people with pre-existing conditions, rendering uh, health status insurance now kind of irrelevant, killing the market. And that's another point. Once we make health insurance legal again, health status insurance was just one innovation that already was nascent because of the, the the demand for it. So there's no telling how many other kinds of health insurance products could come into being if we were able to have 
people, you know, uh, approach insurers with their particular, what they particularly needed and see if they can design it. I'm sure we could have insurance just against the particular disease that you're concerned about. You know, maybe you want to buy insurance to protect you against uh, anything that could develop from uh, diabetes. And, but that's all. You want to limit it to that. I'm sure that could be, if there was a market for it, the market will be met. But uh, the ACA, among other things, uh, stunts, stunts innovation. We are stuck with the Affordable Care Act for however long we're stuck with it. And there are a lot of people who would, you know, who would like to pay some nominal amount and be able to opt out entirely of, I'm one of those people, I'd like to be able to opt out entirely of the system. I'd be willing, I'm not above buying a little bit of my freedom back. If, if that were a possibility, uh, you know, how quickly could a lot of these markets that were sort of wiped out uh, by the Affordable Care Act and, and to a lesser extent by uh, HIPAA could reconstitute themselves? Well, right now, more and more people are opting out. Uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, the Obamacare is in a death spiral. Because right, but creating new products to say, oh, well, I've opted out, so I, I don't have to comply with a whole lot of these uh, regulations. Uh, what I'm talking about is the ability to purchase your way out of that regulatory regime entirely. Um, it's, it's, it's inhibited now because insurance companies are not allowed. They, they get penalized for offering a health insurance product that, does, that is not ACA compliant. But, but, but there's nothing that if you're willing right now to pay the, the penalty, um, you can just opt to self-insure where you right now pay direct cash. You use your savings and and uh, and pay for, pay for your health care. And we're seeing more and more people do that. And uh that I, what we, I'm not against insurance. I think we should have insurance, but I think insurance should be what was insur insurance was designed to be, which is to cover you against going bankrupt, basically, and, and leave the rest to you. Let you be the negotiator for your health care. So what is, the, what is the likelihood of, well, what has the Affordable Care Act done to price transparency? You're a physician, so, so what have you seen it hasn't helped tri price transparency at all. We already had a problem with price transparency because we were largely have evolved into a third-party payer system. So in, in a, in, in a, when you have a third-party payer system, you don't have a direct interaction between the end user and the provider. There's a third party in the middle. And so uh, already we have what is called in our field a charge master price. Basically, doctors, hospitals, it's in pharmacies, they have uh, a, basically a fictional price that they assign to whatever it is, that they're, whatever service or product they're offering. And that's basically their opening negotiation position. But they list it as their official price because that, that has to be the, their public stance when they're dealing with a third party. And so um, let's say uh, um, a hospital wants to charge $30,000 for a hip replacement. So it says $30,000, they know the insurance company, the middleman, is going to come down much lower and they'll reach some spot in the middle which is closer to what they wanted. Now, the, 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 unfortunately, the user is left out of the negotiation. And the, so the, so the, and the needs and the priorities and context of the third party are a whole lot different than the user. So uh, the third party, which is spending other people's money, which is the money in the, in the pool, on something for other people. So it's the worst kind of spending, spending other people's money on something for somebody else 
just like when the government does that. Well, so the third party may settle for, let's say, $15,000 for a total hip for a hospital bill as opposed to 30. Whereas the, if, if they asked the patient, the patient might say, you know what, I'm not getting my hip done if I have to pay anything over $8,000. But nobody asked the patient. The patient is actually left out of the negotiation process. The person who's affected is actually out of the loop. Um, so nobody really knows what the real price is. And including, as a doctor, people ask me, well, how much will this cost? I don't even know the answer to give them because it all depends on the price that was negotiated between me and that health plan. And I don't know off the top of my head what price was negotiated. So I can't give them the answer. And then when the patients receive the bill, they, they receive a bill showing what the charge master price was. And then they show sometimes, if, if at, the, at the end of the day, they'll show what it was marked down to based upon the contract. And some of these bills are unintelligible. But one thing everybody knows, which is don't believe the price that's put on there because that's just a fantasy. That's just make-believe. If we get back to people being in charge of their healthcare dollars, and 90% of, of healthcare transactions are small. They're everyday things, not things that is not they're not unpredictable catastrophic events where you need to insure yourself. You don't need to insure yourself to go to the doctor for an annual physical because you could predict that you're going to go to the doctor for an annual physical or for, uh, you know, you get the flu. Well, people get the flu. It's common. You don't need to insure yourself against that. You, you, you can pay for that. So if those kind of things were, were taking place and we just had insurance for the very, very rare occurrence where something very expensive comes out of the blue, like you get hit with a, a cancer, something like that, and you have to have a major cancer surgery or a heart attack or a stroke. So it, it, the prices will have been driven down by the direct interaction between the patient and the providers. And then even those catastrophic events will cost less because the overall prices have been pushed down. What hope do you have for a quote unquote repeal and replace plan for the Affordable Care Act that gets us any of the things you've described? Um, uh, it's hard to say. I would say uh, I'm cautiously hopeful. I wouldn't even say optimistic. A lot of the, at this time that we're, we're uh, recording this, I'm hearing a lot of uh, leaks coming out of uh, the, the congressional uh, groups that are working on the bill and leadership that suggests that uh, many of the reform features are going to—they're not—they're not learning from the mistakes of the past. They're—they're going to still um, keep in place many things that make uh, insurance again not insurance. Uh, they're going to require all insurance, for example, to co to cover pre-existing conditions, regardless of a person's uh, ability to pay, et cetera. Uh, so, if—if uh, if the rumors are, are true, I don't think we've learned from our mistakes. I'm hope, hoping, however, that they'll come to their senses and we'll get, get real uh, health care reform. Jeffrey Singer is founder of Valley Surgical Clinics and is a Cato Institute adjunct scholar. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.